Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Hey everybody, welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the conversations are deep and the drinks are deeper. I just said that wrong and it's still in the intro. I don't know why I'm saying it again. This is weird. But anyway, hello everybody. Uh, I want to introduce Michael. Michael Jones is the founder and director of Inspiring Philosophy, a non-profit Christian organization with the goal of spreading and defending the message of Jesus. Uh, Michael just finished his master's in philosophy and he might be going on to do some stuff further. We might hear about it today, we might not. Uh, Michael is a friend of the show, appearing on the second ever episode of Deep Drinks Podcast. And for um, for long-time listeners, they would know uh, that I'm always pointing Christians, especially Christians who are struggling with their faith and don't want to struggle with their faith, uh, to Michael's stuff. Uh, not because I think Michael is right, but because I th- uh, because I think because as far as apologists go, I think he's the least wrong. <laughs> so as you can tell, I'm hoping uh, for some fun banter as we discuss topics of this magnitude. Welcome, Michael Jones. Thank you. No pressure on sending people away. I hope I don't screw them up. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, this is going to be a good one. Uh, you're a bit sick, aren't you, Michael? Yeah, I've, I've been sick all week, and I thought I was getting better, but I think it may have just been rage from the past couple of days, and now I'm, like, calming down. I've been very angry so, as of late. So you've been angry. Why is that? Because of uh, Lord of the Rings, right? I am, like, a diehard Tolkien fan to the point where I have picked up books called, like, Lord of the Rings and Philosophy to read for pleasure <laughs> um, and that rings of power the amazon show came out and i was just pulling my hair out because it's just a bastardization of everything tolkien stood for and loved and i hate the show you would you'd think that he would get someone like they would get like experts in to like fact check their script and stuff and like at least point in this in the right direction do you have you'd like think. a cons- consensus view do you have a consensus view on Tol- tolkien's philosophy or uh not really no, I probably do. I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, if you read like the the book, Lord of the Rings and philosophy, it's like each chapter has a different author and they're all like basically saying, you know, like, you know, this guy's just writing like a Christian fantasy world, uh, basically. Is that why um, my church allowed Lord of the Rings, but not Harry Potter? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> which I, which I always have find... witches and wizards and. Well, I always find funny because like you can't have Harry Potter because they do witchcraft in it, but like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings literally goes and does like basically necromancy. Like it's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it, that was always a head scratch for me because we'd actually show clips of um Lord of the Rings in church, like the Helm's <laughs> Deep, you know, and Jesus or slash Gandalf comes at the end, ah, you know. Um, yeah. Anyway, so before we uh, get started, we what are we drinking, Michael? The uh, Dalvini 15. <laughs> oh, I am so excited. This is one of my favorite whiskeys. Uh, Tom from the chat, he actually bought this bottle for me. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, so you people I'm, buying I'm, whiskey? My fault. Yeah, he bought me any whiskey. Well, he didn't. It wasn't a follower. He's one of my best friends. It was for a Christmas uh, Christmas party. So um, he came He came to our house and he bought it with a few friends. So Just saying, yeah, followers, um, if you really want to get my attention. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so, um, so we're discussing the problem of evil, uh, which when I was a Christian, I didn't think was a problem at all. Uh, I thought that everything made sense. Um, the wages of sin were death, you know, sin into the world. That's why there's death and destruction, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, and then I read Bart Ehrman's book, God's Problem. That was like, okay, there's some interesting points there. It wasn't like mind altering or anything. But then the more and more I thought about it, I, there's some things that kind of popped out to me and became an um, issue. So what I thought we would do is we would um, we could just bounce off each other a little bit and just discuss it because you've obviously thought about it probably way more than me. You've got two videos on it, which by the way, everyone go check out those videos. They're awesome videos. But um, I thought we could start by... I'm going to reposit a question that was given to Pastor Rob Bell before he was um, kicked out of the church. Uh, so, so he went on a talk show to discuss his book, and it, it was just after the Japanese earthquake. And um, and I've written this down. When Pastor Rob Bell was interviewed in the wake of the of Japan's 2011 earthquake and tsunami, resulting in 15,899 deaths, the interviewer asked Pastor Bell, "Which of these is true?" Either God is all-powerful, but he doesn't care about the people of Japan and therefore their suffering, or he does care about the people of Japan, but he's not all-powerful. So I thought we could start there. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is more like an issue around the problem of suffering because you don't have, like, you know, human freedom involved in this. This is some sort of earthquake or what you said, tsunami, correct? Yeah, tsunami. Ah, uh, yeah, earthquake. And, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, it's like, so why does these type of things happen? And there, there's all sorts of reasons we can give uh, to sort of go into this type of thing. One, one thing I like to remind people though, is like uh, when you're going to ask like a pastor, like Rob Bell, who's a Christian, a question like this, you have to take into account the full Christian worldview. And this is something I lay out in my video on suffering, which is like, okay, so it, the full Christian worldview also posits that there is an afterlife. So these people don't necessarily go out of existence per se. Uh, uh, they don't necessarily um, just, you know, end life there. And so we need to think of it from that perspective as well. So it's not so much the idea that it's sort of like their end of the existence. It's just sort of like a continuation on from existence. I use the analogy of like raising children. As we all know, children often feel like what we're doing to them can be like the end of the world. And we realize it's just part of the growing process. These are things they sort of go through to sort of uh, uh, mature to get older, we allow certain things to happen to them because we realize they have to sort of uh, grow into a more mature person, which then raises the question, what are God's motives here? So when people bring up instances of suffering and say, if God is all good, why does he allow suffering? It seems to me they're implicitly suggesting a normative theory of ethics that would be consequentialism or utilitarianism, the idea that goodness is creating more happiness and badness would be creating more suffering. The problem is, is that that's just one view of normative ethics. Suppose that maybe the actual view of ethics would be something like deontology or virtue ethics. In that sense, God's goal is not so much to reduce suffering and create more happiness, but to create more virtue, to create more uh, people that are virtuous, that are mature, that grow from certain experiences they go through. And so if that's the case, God very well may in his system understand that suffering needs to be allowed to create more virtuous agents, to create more uh, mature individuals that use reason, that understand uh, more about life than they would if they didn't. It's like this. It's like, what would be better, to live as a Teletubby or to live as Frodo from The Lord of the Rings? Well, a Teletubby, as the children show, they're they're ignorant. They're, they don't understand. They don't grow. We would say that those type of characters are good, per se, uh, but they're not... They're not triumphant. They're not glorious creatures. They're just ignorant, innocent. 
they don't really advance. We would say someone like Frodo from Lord of the Rings is more interesting because of the suffering he went through. He became a triumphant creature that has matured and grew into something far better uh, than without the suffering there. So the argument, basically what I lay out in the video is that God can very well allow suffering if his normative uh, ethic system that he operates with is more of a virtue ethical or a deontological system. So when people bring up instances of suffering, my first answer is, well, what is the underlying normative view here? What is, we need to define goodness. We need to define badness. Because once, if we define goodness and it's not just promoting happiness to the greatest number of people, then we need to reevaluate if suffering, if allowing suffering is necessarily uh, instrumentally bad. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking it was going to go down this route because it, it gets so fundamental, right? But first of all, can we please keep up the um, Lord of the Rings references throughout this conversation? Because that is I, amazing. I absolutely will because it's so fresh <laughs> on my mind. I have just yeah. I, all week I've been reading Tolkien's letters to because I'm working on a video that's going to be on the Lord of the Rings will come out Friday on his philosophy. So it's all there right now. <laughs> awesome. So um, so if we were to rephrase this right then, um, so. We've got two, we got two premises or, or two points that he brought up. Either God is all powerful, but he doesn't care about the people of Japan, or he's not all powerful, right? But he does care. So we could maybe I I, I think uh, what is what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that God is all powerful, but we would change the word from he doesn't care to um his uh he doesn't find it important. Uh, he's got he's got he's got a larger goal in mind, I guess. To I would I would say he cares, uh, but he cares about something more important. Right, right, okay. So, I mean, I told this story a couple of weeks ago in, um, and I don't know if this if this will fit with your version of Christianity, but um, as you know, I was a Pentecostal youth pastor, so we believed in healing, speaking in tongues, um, I did all that stuff, and. And uh, when my wife and I were recently going through a, a um, going through IVF, we've been going through fertility stuff for five years. And um, before we went through IVF, we had a friend um, reach out to us and say um, that there was a prophet that came to their church and asked and said that there was someone in someone's family in that church that was dealing with endometriosis and needed to be healed. Uh, and if they came the following week, when they this when this prophet was coming, they were going to be healed and they were going to get. Um, healed from this right now this you know i don't believe in god anymore but this this caused actually caused me a lot of uh distress because we were so desperate and it was so hard for us that mm -hmm. we were like uh we were like it, it put us back into the old way of thinking like that it was like a magical way of thinking mm -hmm. and something something that helped me out of that actually was realizing that i don't know if i would want god to do that so if, if god had the power through this prophet and I, I want to get your thoughts on this to heal my wife of endometriosis then please use god use your powers to stop that little girl from being raped or that child from starving or that mother with cancer like do do something else we can go through the medical system and we can get it treated and it's got a very high success rate but it's very hard and expensive but if god has the power to do that it seemed almost that if god was to heal us but then turn a blind eye to a starving child that 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 paints god to be a moral monster and i don't yeah. know if you agree with that as you do agree with that well that's why i i take the view i don't think i think miracles are exceptionally rare 
and they're always for other purposes like they're for you know they're using the bible to reveal god's plan to humanity to reveal who he is they're not used because they're trying to reduce uh, make a utilitarian principle reduce create more happiness reduce suffering they're used for other means i don't think that's god's end goal is to sort of like well oh no people aren't happy i better do some miracles to make everyone happy down there kind of thing I, again this goes back to my understanding of um when I was talking about the normative ethical principles that we're operating on. And yeah, I do believe miracles happen, but they're exceptionally rare. And funny, funny enough, when I was reading Tom Holland, who's an atheist who wrote his book Dominion, he said, you know, it's a Christian idea to be skeptical of these type of claims, these type of supernatural claims. This is a Christian heritage thing he was arguing. Uh, and so he was like, you know, looking at the history, he's making some good points and we should be skeptical of these things unless we have sufficient evidence. So Again, I think miracles are exceptionally rare. I don't think they're for the the means of just making people happy. I think they're if God is going to do them, they're for other purposes that are going to either egg and increase virtue, spread His kingdom, these kinds of things. So, so that would put you at odds with thirty percent of the U.S. population who are evangelicals, right? Uh, to quote, to quote Aaron Raw, bring it. <laughs> I love that you quoted Aaron Ra. Oh, he's uh, he just had his 60th birthday, so happy birthday, Aaron! Happy birthday, um, Aaron! But yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't care what 30 percent of the population. If, if the 30 yeah. percent of the population is wrong, it's wrong. Like yeah. if, if like freaking like I don't know, Odin appeared to me. Okay, I believe Odin is real now. Most people don't believe Odin is real. It's not going to change my belief. Like. <laughs> well, we touched on uh, the reasons you believe uh, in the first episode um, back, you know, last year. Uh, the first time you were on, sorry, the second episode of Deep Drinks. And um, so we won't go too much there. But so essentially we need to discuss morals, at least for the problem of suffering, right? Like ethics. Mm -hmm. So I guess what's your what's your issue with the – and I'll get back to the problem of evil because I, I don't think we're going to – end up at a reasonable conclusion going down this other rabbit hole but so i'll bring us back eventually but just to just to tap dance our way down the tangent of um of uh morals what are your moral prescriptions or ideas so i'm a virtue ethicist if that's what you mean like my normative ethical system yeah, so yeah, normal, yeah yeah so my my i ever i mean this is something i studied a lot when i was getting my master's uh it's kind of like forced upon me because there were so many virtue ethicists there but i mean i was already kind of a virtue ethicist before but my basic ethical system is, is Christian virtue ethics. It's the idea that uh, we ought to live what is a flourishing life. Uh, we ought to increase virtues. We ought to try to be more loving, patient, peaceful, kind. That's the goal of ethics is to become uh, what, what Aristotle would have said, the fromenos, the, the, the virtuous agent that just knows what the virtue is and knows how to act because of that. So sometimes that requires us to not be happy. So it tries to be angry. Like if someone tries to desecrate the grave of Tolkien, we should be very angry for that and do everything we can to fight against it. Uh, sometimes we are required to be sad. Uh, like the philosopher Bernard Williams brought up a, a thought of experiment, which I love this thought of experiment. He says like, imagine you are taken uh, like captive by like some military leader. And he's like, all right, here's the deal. We'll let you go. But we also capture these 19 natives and they were protesting our activities. If you kill one of them, We'll let the other 18 go. And you're like, okay, well, obviously the right thing to do is to kill one of them because you're going to save 18 lives. Because if not, he's going to kill all of them. But mm -hmm. William says you should also feel remorse. You should feel sadness for that. You should not feel like you did a good because you you killed somebody. You, you should feel like you did something bad. Uh, and that's part of ethics. You should feel remorse for this the situation you were put in, even though you probably made the best possible choice in there. 
so it's this idea that, you know, like sometimes there's a, we, we were made for a plethora of emotions and we need to experience a plethora of emotions. Living a flourishing life is more than just being happy. It's also having righteous anger, being, having righteous jealousy at times, uh, being sad, having remorse, experiencing these types of things. So it's about being virtuous, living a flourishing life. That's the point of ethics is to become the Framinas. So is, uh, is virtue ethics, and I should know this because I've tried to read... Uh... This book was recommended to me by a philosophy student. Have you read this book? The Fundamentals Fundament of Ethics. No. Ruth Schaefer Lando. Um, have I? Maybe. I think I did a while ago, but I don't know if I have where it is. I read a bunch it's of his a, books, like when I was studying metaethics. Yeah. It's uh it's it's fantastic. Uh he goes through every um uh every moral every moral kind of like major moral theory. I have this uh, moral one. Realism. I don't know where oh, cool. I don't know where the other one is, but yeah. So do you think that, do you think that, um, do you think that, um, uh, that, that morality is subjective or objective? I guess we can start there. So I, I, I I'm say, small brain, me, small brain, you, big brain need you, big brain, tell small brain. Good. Don't worry. You make up for it with the beard. So a much bigger <laughs> yeah. beard. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what do you think about morality with objective or subjective? So I'm a moral realist like Ruth, Shaler, Ruth Schaefer Lando is. Uh, so I do think there, there are objective moral values and duties. Uh, I would say that we objectively, we should try to live a flourishing life. And there are only a certain number of ways. Like the, it's, there's not an infinite number of ways. Like we would not say living as a serial killer is an objective way to live a good life. You would say that's, that's the wrong way to live a flourishing life. Now, there are different ways. Like my father was a police officer and he flourished. Uh, my mother was a aerobic instructor. She flourished. There are different ways to live a flourishing life, but there is a set limited number of ways that is objectively the right way to live. And do you think this objective morality um, would exist outside of like socially constructed norms we have in society? Like, do you think there's a, like, are you like kind of like T-jump where you point to, you like, there's an under, there's a objective law of the universe that points to morality? Yeah, that might be a, a okay way to say it. I have to think about it. That's a way I'd want to word it. Um, I, I use this analogy. I think um, this comes from Thomas Nagel. He says, right now, there's like an objective, there's an objective fastest way for me to get across town. It will change depending on construction, traffic, light, but there's always going to be some objective fastest way to get across town. Now, that's dependent on the existence of the town being there, but it still mm -hmm. contains objective facts within it. So, we could say that, you know, with humans existing, there are objective facts about humans that require there are only a limited number of ways to live a flourishing life. Um, even though, you know, if humans didn't exist, those rules would not exist as well. But we could say that these type of objective laws are still in existence. Okay. Where do you think those objectives come from? And I'm just, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just asking. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, my, I, this is where we get into arguments for God's existence, because I do think they do come from a god but i don't argue it like well they just have to come from god i say look okay mm. so we think there are objective moral values and duties okay how, how does that work because if there are duties for us duties can only exist between agents uh you know my house cannot prescribe me a duty you would prescribe me a duty like you know maybe watch your kid for you sometime or something like that duties exist between agents so think of also like the moral ideal if you're going to think of what the actual objective ideal is uh you're going to think of an agent, someone who is a fromina, someone who always does what is right, knows the proper actions. So my argument is, is that when we study the ontology 
of objective moral values and duties, it implies that it is a, that they themselves are actually a personal rational source. And then we just call that God. It implies a personality involved because prescriptions, duties, and ideal um, are something that exists between minds or something that, that is, uh, has a mental aspect to it. So my argument is basically like, if we accept their objective moral values and duties, that is itself seems that there's some sort of necessary rational agent itself that we would that would be the grounding of these things, so to speak. So I don't say that, yeah. you know, like morality has to come from God's nature. I just say God is the good. They're, they're basically like we discovered like when water is H2O, they're basically the same thing. Same kind of thing with my, my view of objective morality. If you say there's objective morality, it's like saying God exists. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, so with the analogy that you use about um, a town and the quickest way through town, let's say Hobbit, Hobbiton, and the quickest way through Hobbiton, right? Um, to bring it back to Tolkien, but the quickest way to a town, a Hobbiton, uh, but that would change depending on the circumstances. So, is that why? Do you do you think that, for example, in the Old Testament, slavery was seen as like a moral, like amb Permiss ambiguous, per permissible, but now it's not? Yeah, uh, because my my argument is with this is that God is doing something in the Bible called moral progress. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are basically the degradation of humanity. They get so far gone that by Genesis 11, they're in Tower of Babel incident and they are, they think God needs food. They think he needs requirements. They think he can, they can lure him down. And so God is now going to have incremental steps to get us out of this moral degradation process we have put ourselves in. So you could mm -hmm. say like, you know, it's like taking baby steps. Oh, and you know, Bible kind of admits this, like Matthew 19, you were given a law of divorce because your hearts were hard. First Samuel 8, I don't think you guys should have a king as part of our covenant together, but I'll give you one if you insist. Or like Numbers 22, where we see that the Israel's, like the daughters of uh, this one guy are allowed to uh, update the law based on what they see is fitting their circumstances. Mm, true. Okay. Um, when I say true, I just mean, okay, I understood. I don't... Um... No, you said I'm right. I, therefore, I win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Game over. The whiskey's kicking in. No. So, um, look, it's it it feels to okay. I'm just gonna say what I'm what I'm feeling, and you can just explain. Okay, it feels very tap dancey. It feels like we're 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 kind of ad hoc rationalizing the abhorrent things that we find in the Bible. Like I know that you have a well. I don't know if this is true, but uh, that you think this. But I've had conversations with some some people who keep sending me your videos when I bring up some of these problems. So I'm imagining it. I haven't watched them, but I imagine it. So like things like, um, you know, take the virgin girls for yourself uh, or to kill all the Amalekites or whoever they are and kill the infants, but take, you know, things like that. Um, people will say, no, that was, uh, someone I was talking to on Twitter said, no, that was uh, God using hyperbole, right? And mm -hmm. is that something you subscribe to? Uh, yeah, well, when it comes to Numbers 31, you'd mentioned take the virgin girls. I agree with scholars like Robert Alter. That's not actually a command from God. That's actually, Robert Alter says this is Moses sort of acting on his own, going above and beyond what God commanded or allowed. And so it's like an instance with the patriarch, just like Abraham trying to sell his wife. Like he's doing something God did not want, but it's it's listed as a description of what happened in the past. Yeah, so, but that, to me, that paints God like once again, I'm not saying this of God. It just the this idea to me seems to paint God as a moral monster. So God didn't allow Moses into the promised land because he struck the rock with the mm -hmm. stick instead of speaking to it. Right? That was a sin so great that that he was not to see the promised land that God promised him. But for him to command that the Israelites to take virgin girls, 
obviously mm-hmm. for marriage, rape, uh, all that stuff. Um, if that isn't from God, at least why wasn't why didn't God punish uh, Moses for that specifically? That that to me, like to me, it's like if I was God. I can see so many areas of the New Testament of the Old Testament where I would I would even if people's hearts were hardened I would say things like don't own people as property and you know et cetera et cetera. Yeah, and I, I understand where you're coming from. I think I think it's we need to take a, a, a perspective though. It's like it would be really great right now if Saudi Arabia allowed equal rights for women. They're not going to though. Mm-hmm. So what do we see Western countries encouraging them? Please just let them drive. Please just let them, you know, be able to go outside the house without a male escort. Like incremental steps, guys. Please let, let's let's get to to a place where we think you're going to start treating women equally. We, I would love. I mean, if we start going in there and saying, no, 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 you're going to treat them equally. Well, they're going to rebel. They're going to freak out. They're going to try to cut OPEC oil. They're going to fight mm-hmm. us on that stuff. But if we work with them to just say, okay, let's start simple. Let, let women drive. And then 10 years later, let's let them go out without a male escort. Let's let them be able to leave the country on their own, like little incremental mm-hmm. steps. And that we know is actually a better way to make some sort of changes along the way. And that's what we want to see. So I think God also understands that principle as well. If that's how we act with countries like Saudi Arabia, why wouldn't God be doing the same kind of thing with ancient people who were far more morally degraded than people are today? Interesting. Interesting. Okay, uh, let's let's run through and um, look at a few. If we have any questions, if anyone has any quick questions, uh, oh, we'll... I don't know why my light keeps like flickering in and out. It's like my my camera keeps like playing with like the sat like the the brightness. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't know. know why. Uh, that's I don't know why either. But it's it's not that distracting or anything. Does anyone got any questions? Some hadiths are true, some are not. <laughs> okay. Uh, someone said, "What is meta ethics?" I don't know if that's a, true, a proper question. Oh, meta-ethics. No, that's a that meta-ethics. Okay, so let me describe ethics. So there's applied ethics, there's normative ethics, and there's meta-ethics. And they all are sort of built on top of one another. So like applied ethics is like, how do we operate in a society? How do we do certain things? Normative ethics is what we're supposed to do. So like, are we supposed to make happiness, people happy? Are we supposed to make people virtuous? Are there certain deontological laws we're supposed to follow? Uh, so it's, it's about like, what is ethics? Meta-ethics is the nature of ethics. So it's like, okay, so if we understand, like, let's say we pick like a virtue ethics. We'll just say we have decided that virtue ethics is the way to go. Now we're interested in what, like, what is the nature of ethics? Is it something that is cognitive or non-cognitive? Is it relative to a culture, relative to an individual? Is it something objective? If it's objective, is it beyond nature? Is it natural? So applied ethics is like, what are we going to do specifically? Normative ethics is like, uh, what is ethics? Like, are we supposed to build happiness or virtue or deontological systems? And then beneath that is meta-ethics. And that's like, well, what is the nature of this thing we're talking about? Okay. Okay. Um, I don't understand, but hopefully other people do. <laughs> like I said. People, people want, this is a very, very good book called um, Meta-ethics. It's very simple. And the guy, Andrew Fisher, actually when I was doing my series on meta ethics, I wrote to him and said, could you review my videos and help me with it? He was so helpful. Like he like made, and he made me rewrite entire like sections of videos, which was kind of frustrating, but I was so glad he did because he fixed so many errors I had. So he's a great guy. I would, uh, I'd love to do a bookshelf tour with you one day. Um, or maybe we can even do it in the end of the stream. Um, just for you to show us 
the awesome collection you have. The only problem is in this room, there's like just some books and like the rest of them. I have a bit room of a bunch of like I have some in boxes that I just don't have anywhere else to put. And then I got a bunch of ebooks now because my wife said I have to stop buying books. So I'm trying to buy <laughs> ebooks now because like when we, if we move out of this house, it's going to be like like a workout session. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be like, good. And it's horrible because like I have books like I hate, like I'm like, but I won't get rid of them. I'm like, I turn into like Golem. I'm like, no, the precious. Like, it's like I <laughs> yeah. can't get rid of my books. I have, uh, I still have a copy of, um, of every young man's battle, uh, which I think, um, is, is, uh, is, I won't say it, but I was going to say something about Mein Kampf, but it's a bad book. I, I would say, I think it damages <laughs> a lot of people, but, uh, I don't did, know if we'd agree on this. Did the author recant it? Oh, maybe that'd be, that'd be great if he did. Um, I got a question for, from Swift C. Uh, you said that the Old Testament God is morally progressive, progressing Israel. What book goes deeper into that? Oh, good question. That, that's a good, I think a lot of this comes from me reading commentaries uh, in the sword. It's hard for me to think of a specific book that covers it. I know Paul Copin has some books on it, although I do, do disagree with him on some specifics of that. So a good book maybe to start would be, um, I mean, I would tell people to start on the nature of the Torah itself. So maybe like uh, uh, The Lost World of the Torah by John Walton might be a good place to start. Just understanding what the Torah meant in that culture. But stuff on morally progressing Israel, I mean, that's that's a lot of stuff I'm getting from different commentaries that I've been just sort of piecing together. Uh, so I don't know of any specific book that would cover that, so I apologize. Okay. Here's, uh, here's the problem. There's not a lot of, like, Christian apologists that really do a lot of Old Testament stuff. That's yeah. kind of why I started doing a lot of it, because I felt like there was a need there. Mm. And like I said at the start, um, uh, I don't think you're right, but you're the least wrong. <laughs> that can be, <laughs> hey, put that on the back of your the, your first book you published, Dave McDonald, Atheist. He's, he's not right, but, but he's, he's the least wrong. No, I, uh, you know, when you compare it, when you're up against like Kent Hoven and uh, Ken Ham and like, you know, uh, even William Lane Craig, I think has some good things to say. But uh, I think that you, you know, when Christians are questioning their faith and they're like, hey, I really don't want to question my faith. I'm like, go check out Michael Jones and stuff. It's fine. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to evangelize atheism or anything. It's like, Stupid that's like cool that. yeah i appreciate that um but uh but i still think you're wrong um well, so uh <laughs> why is theism not a good option here why is open uh, why theism is open not theism good? not a good option here yeah so i just don't think i don't philosophically i think it's an okay option uh what is open theism can you open theism is basically the idea that god does not know the future he his omniscience require is basically limited to the present and the past he doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow he's got a pretty he's got the best guess of anyone obviously uh but he does not know for sure everything that's going to happen i just don't think it fits biblically i think it's pretty clear that god is omniscient and knows what's going to happen oh okay this that's perfect because that leads me right into the next part of the conversation uh so uh i i wanted to um talk a little bit about determinism what are your thoughts on determinism well i'm not a determinist to be to be sure i but uh i took a class about a year ago on where the, both professors were compatibilists and i think they made a pretty good case that compatibilism could be quite possible it's, you know and i don't think it is anything inconsistent with christianity so it opened up new avenues to where i started to think compatibilism may not be that bad uh, but I'm, I'm definitely not a determinist. And if determinism is true, I would just be a compatibilist. I'm not against the idea that that could be a possibility. 
So are you aware of like stories of like people who, you know, commit some crime and it's the totally outside of the character. And then when they do an autopsy on them after um, they find out they had a brain tumor um, mm -hmm. that was pushing. So would you say in, in those circumstances, are those people guilty uh, of those crimes from a ground level? Respect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, possibly no. I mean, and we have to remember, I think Jesus says so much that like in John 9, 41, John 15, 22, he says, like, if I had not come, they would not be guilty. Now that I've come, they have no excuse. So it's this idea that God judges people based on the information they had. So if someone is being forced to do something um, and it's really not their will, I don't think that that's going to be held against them. Uh, I'm okay. in the sense what you would call a legal universalist. When John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world, that means Jesus took away the sin of the world. The only people that are in hell are the people who choose to be there because they've rejected God openly. Uh, so okay. all that all all basically go to heaven if they want to. Uh, so if that's the case, I'm very much as well as Paul says in Romans five thirteen, sin is not counted where there is no law. So you know if and I think you can extrapolate from that that if somebody is being forced to do something, like you know it's like if like if like I'm sure we have the technology if someone built like a robot arm that would make me pick up a gun. And, you know, shoot myself to fake a suicide. Like in that one movie, Sniper. Like, if you that really... Obviously not. It's a weird movie, but one of the characters in the middle of it is like the CIA or something puts him in like a thing where he's going to like pull the trigger. And then, of course, the, the protagonist shows up oh, and yeah. him. Uh, but it's like, okay. he didn't commit suicide. Like, he's not at fault for that. Mm. If someone, something else is making you do something, uh, you're not at fault for that. And, you know, libertarian free will allows for the idea that there are circumstances that prevent us from actually acting free at times so do you think our choices um are, con are controlled by our brain our state our brain state i would say brain states are aspects of the brain aspects of the world itself influence our choices and i'd say that in many cases we're the ultimate decider so i, I differentiate between two things here free will and freedom i would say okay. we have the ability of free will but sometimes we don't have uh enough freedom to activate it or use it. So freedom is like the gasoline and free will is like the car. If there's no freedom in the car, gasoline can't really drive it anywhere. If you, you know, okay. put me in a jail cell, you have limited my freedom and my ability to use my free will. Uh, but you didn't take away my free will. You just took away so much freedom. Likewise, if you have a certain tumor, it's going to limit your freedom in so many ways that maybe you won't be able to, be able to use your free will as you could without it. So it's about... Is the and availability is there a way though to um like what evidence do you have that i guess i don't know if this is a, a correct i might be committing some sort of fallacy here but is what evidence do you have that our choices our consciousness our decision making processes are out are anything outside of just our brain so I did a series called Irreducible Mind, which I refer people to. And of course, it's not a proof, but I'd say there's evidence of this. Uh, so for one thing, uh, there was a neuroscientist uh, like Mario Beregard, as well as Jeffrey Schwartz, who they did these studies. Um, and they looked at the brain activity of either, I'll just do a Beregard study. He looked at the brain activity of people uh, and then he, before and then after. So he made them watch basically porn. Mm -hmm. um, and he told them to consciously focus on not getting aroused. 
And he, he noticed after that the brain activity actually changed. The arousal parts of the brain had actually rewired themselves so that they would prevent themselves from getting aroused as much. Jeffrey Schwartz did the same thing with OCD patients, and he found that brain activity changed through conscious effort. So there, Jeffrey Schwartz is pretty uh, um, explicit about this. He's arguing that there's this idea of an immaterial soul uh, that actually can change the brain chemistry that is not necessarily determined by the brain chemistry. The brain chemistry is happening after the conscious efforts. So he's inferring, not proving, but inferring that there is some sort of immaterial substance that is actually able to modify the brain chemistry. Now, it doesn't deny that brain chemistry can affect people, but he says there's like, oh, there's, there's also, you can affect your brain chemistry and your brain chemistry can affect you. Have you heard of Shannon Q's take on uh, the neuroscience and how she doesn't think a soul could even um, be influencing the brain because of like the, I'm not sure I'm going to butcher it, but have you, have you heard her talk about the brain at all? A little bit. I think I know where you're going with it though. Yeah. So, so when I had her on deep drinks, um, we got wildly drunk by the way, but, uh, but what she was talking about this, it all goes over my head. Um, but essentially like she, when in her deconstructing her faith, she realized that, um, that she, uh, she couldn't, she, she doesn't even think it's possible for a soul to be, a soul would literally have to be, um, uh, spawning into someone's head and moving sodium ions around like in a physical way to, you know, to, for, for thoughts and things like that. All right, hold on. I got a book. I got a book. Okay. So first of all, my, my view is I'm an idealist. So I don't think there's like a, I think everything's immaterial. So this is called the interaction problem. It's the idea that how does an immaterial act with a material without like, you know, adding energy it would violate the law of conservation, this idea. So I am a um, idealist. So my basic view is that the brain or the self, this is just what a first person conscious experience would look like in reality. You're going to manifest as something. So the brain activity is just the image of um, a conscious agent acting. So it's okay. reverse. It's this basic idea that, you know, it's like, it's I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but basically what I'm trying to say is like when the brain is like signaling and firing, that is just the representation of a conscious agent who is act, acting and doing certain things. It's not so much this idea that there's an immaterial soul that's like affecting the brain chemistry. The brain itself is the image of it. However, if you are a substance dualist, this is written by a neuroscientist, John Eccles, how the self controls its brain. What he argues is he does a very good job. He argues from um, a physicist. He argues that the, the self, the immaterial self affecting the material substance is not affecting it in a way where it's going to move in and change things. It's more like a quantum wave where it just affects probability waves. Now, what that basically means is it doesn't have to you know, insert energy or change anything. It just has to shift different probabilities of already existing chemistry there. That's how it influences and affects things. And I think that's more in line with some of the research that I had brought up earlier about, uh, you know, being able to modify brain chemistry through conscious efforts, that kind of thing. But it's generally the idea that you don't have to sort of introduce um, a sort of immaterial substance that sort of is, is like inserting energy or something. And if you want to see where I explained it in much better detail, check out Irreducible Mind series on my channel. Part three is where I cover that more in depth, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. So that would cover that. Um, I'll, when this goes up, I'll make sure I link it in the description. Cool. Or people can just YouTube it, but um, as well. But uh, the so, something. So just to, this is all just preamble to try and get to where I to see where you're at, so I can explain where I'm at. So yeah. when it comes to determinism uh, or compatibilism, uh, which I'm not 100 sure um, the nuances of both, but so my understanding, this is how I view it is someone uh 
so let's say if we had a rock, right, and we pushed a rock down a hill, and it and it we knew every variable. We knew what it would bounce off. We knew the friction, the temperature, the dust it would hit, the wind. We knew every single variable. We could predict with 100% accuracy where that rock would land at the bottom of the hill. And then if we were to repeat the experiment and nothing changed um, a million times, it would land in the exact same spot a million times. So for me, I view the brain uh, and everything in the universe as a much, 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 much more complicated version of a rock on a hill. Mm -hmm. So when, so for example, I take um, an antidepressant, uh, if it's the right one that I need for my brain, I stop getting depressed. I take diazepine, I stop being anxious. So I, I meditate, my, I rewire, uh, rewire neuro, uh, neurons in my brain. If I go for a jog, I release serotonin and it affects my mood. Like I don't, I, I, I'm a slave to this thing that's in my brain. If someone drives a stake through my head, I'm going to stop having a conscious experience as far as I can tell. Um, so for me, uh, that's how I view the brain and, and, and the world and things like that. Um, obviously, this becomes a bit of a problem when you start looking at moral theories, like how do we then, um, you know, send someone to jail for someone who for something they essentially didn't have a choice in, because obviously, mm -hmm. they're all affected, everything's affected by everything, right? Uh, and I've got some answers for that, but we won't go there. But, but I think um, if that's the case, if I, sub I subscribe to that that worldview, that idea, um, I believe that then Adam and Eve had a specific brain state in order to choose the fruit, in order to, in, to sin. They had a specific brain, right? And God could have created them with a brain that didn't choose that option. And mm -hmm. free will in this concept, in this idea, free will has to be an illusion. Like free will has to be this, this idea of what we think um we're, we it's an illusion we don't have free will we just have we think we do it feels like we do but we we actually don't uh in the grand mm -hmm. scheme of things like this like the same way as like if someone held my head underwater i don't have the free will to live i'm going to drown i need oxygen my brain needs oxygen so in the same way that god created adam and eve he created the garden he created everything around them uh and he knew they were going to sin ahead of time right so to me, I don't know how we hold Adam and Eve accountable for that. Okay. Well, I under think that, like, be... if we could, if we could, so maybe we could split this up in two. Can you address the, the, can you address the point? How would you, how would you solve that problem if you subscribe to my worldview of, of what I just uh. explained? And then tell me why you think it's wrong. Okay. So is there, well, do you have an answer for the first one? So yeah, if we just assume determinism is true, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I will, I don't know if I have a sufficient answer, but I'll do my best. I'll just say that. So for one thing, I think this is one of the reasons I think it's a problem with young earth creationism. Uh, this is something Josh Freshmuson wrote a paper on. It's this idea that God did not create Adam and Eve de novo with like a certain nature. And then that basically is him determining them to act a certain way. It's this idea that God set up like a chaotic universe that sort of churns out souls from the, uh, the chaotic background through an evolutionary process. So it's not so much to say that he directly determined the nature of creatures he created de novo. Uh, it's this idea that certain creatures have come out of the universe and he wants to work with them to get them to a better place. Now, suppose that's the tr truth. Maybe God is sort of like he built this universe to sort of churn out creatures so that he does not have to directly determine their nature. They sort of come out through an evolutionary process. This is coming from Josh Rasmussen's paper and that therefore he's not directly determining them. He comes in at a certain point. And he's like, okay, I want to get them to a better place. Let me start working with them. I know they're going to sin no matter what I do. 
I have a whole process in place that's going to eventually get humanity to a place where it needs to be. It's just going to take a while working with them, working with them, not trying to force them, trying to bring them along uh, without you know me basically jumping in and turning them into biological robots. So if that's the case, then God does not create Adam and Eve de novo. He comes into the, the creation, Genesis 1, establishes his temple. He gets two people to work in the garden. They fall, but it's all part of the process that he knew, was gonna, knew ahead of time was going to happen to sort of get them along to a better place. It's about him creating uh, a better humanity in the long run eventually, even though when he came into our world, we were not exactly at the best place yet, but he's going to help us along to get there without, you know, basically just coming in and basically turning us into string puppets or something. So that's how I would do it if determinism is true. I would talk about like sort of like this epic story uh, mm -hmm. in the sense like you could think of it like, you know, Lord of the Rings again, going back to that, it's like the Eru, Iluvatar, the god, is like comes in uh, and he allows the creation to be what it is um, in that chaotic sense. But over time, through his divine providence, he gets it to a better place. Uh, and then we mm -hmm. see a beautiful story coming out of that. It's much more interesting, a much more epic, triumphant story than if he just sort of created perfect beings to begin with. And there was no struggle. There was no triumph. There was no courage. There was no compassion. It, everything was just perfect to begin with. So that's what I would I would go uh, down that route. Okay. Um, and if uh, so is. Okay. All right. I think that makes sense. So. Yeah. All right. Um, so, so how Here's do you, a, I would want to, I just want to say one more thing. I found it interesting yeah. that what Josh Rasmussen argues is he argues evolution itself helps solve the problem of suffering and evil. Uh, and he mm. did this in his paper, which I found very interesting. And I think he makes a good point because young earth creationism, he's have God creating Adam and Eve de novo. And now they have this nature that he has given them that is going to cause them to sin versus like, mm. um, you know, the idea that they sort of come about from the evolutionary process. So I thought that was a very interesting way that he sort of reversed that argument on them. Okay, true. What is there any resources that you can um, recommend uh, for people who may be more interested in what you're talking about there? Uh, obviously, I'll read them as well because I'm not 100% sure I fully um, follow, following what you're saying. Yeah. Um, do... Let me find the paper. Oh, here it is. It's um, by... Jordan Wesling and Josh Rasmussen, a, ra a randomness-based theodicy for evolutionary evils. Okay. Uh, and I bring it up in my video, The Problem of Suffering, a Christian Response. And so I use some other work there. So that's a resource you can use as well. Okay. So we're darting around like crazy. Um, I've got so much I want to talk to you about, and uh, we've only got a limited time. Um but so I want to jump onto a different thought experiment. But one thing I did want to quickly just uh, mention uh, is um, everyone go and check out Inspiring Philosophy's channel, even if uh, you are a dirty atheist like me. So he's got a lot of cool uh, content, um, a lot of cool uh, videos. And his recent video on uh, the philosophy of Rings of Power is pretty cool. And you're going to be re releasing a like a non-live stream proper version of that soon, which would be really cool. Yeah, I'm going to talk about like one of like one of the things people complain about, like George R. R. Martin have crank, con 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 complained about with Lord of the Rings is like Tolkien does certain things a certain way. And he's like, well, this was bad. Like Martin has criticized him on his writing on that. And I'm going to argue like, no, Tolkien's doing this for a important reason. Like for one thing, He's doing it because he's got an underlying philosophy motivating him to write a certain way. Like if you notice yeah. in Lord of the Rings, there's no hero. No one defeats Sauron 
Frodo doesn't do it. He doesn't throw the ring into Mount Doom. He tries to keep the ring at the end. And then what happens is Gollum just happens to get it off of him and he gets all excited and slips and falls into the lava. So basically Gollum lost because, or Sauron lost because Gollum was clumsy. Now there's this whole thing earlier about how, you know, Frodo curses him that, you know, that, you know that if he ever attacks him, he'll you know, be killed or something. But still the way it played out was, is that Gollum was clumsy and that's what defeated Sauron. Tolkien wrote that way specifically on, on, on purpose because he's doing something. Yeah. I would, uh, I, I think we should have done a stream just purely on Lord of the Rings. Uh, cause this is like clearly a passion of yours. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> this is great. It is. Yeah. There's a, uh, and also, uh, for those who weren't here at the start, Deep Drinks podcasts, we have deep drinks over deep conversations. I'm an agnostic atheist, was a former youth pastor. Coming up, we have a couple of cool episodes with uh, Reese. Uh, um, oh, Reese. Oh my gosh, Reed Nice Wonder uh, about street epistemology and Tate, who did, was a uh, gay as a young man and his mum brought him to uh, an exorcism. And also, listen to Deep Drinks on Spotify, Apple Music, all that stuff. It's all there. Uh, so just but let's let's um I want to jump into a last final thought experiment um question. So uh so I was talking to a philosophy student and they brought up uh a thought experiment that seemed that they, they thought disproved the idea of at least a Western god, um the, the idea of a Christian god. So I know that, for example, in India they don't really have the problem of evil like under their framework of uh, religiosity. I know Arjuna, who you've had, you've talked to about that. Uh, they don't really have the problem of evil. As a Hare Krishna, he doesn't uh, kind of subscribe to it. So the, the thought experiment that, that he came up with is, say we're in a room, meaning you're in a room, and there are two buttons. Um, one gives you $500 to charity, and one gives you $1,000 to charity. Uh, neither are immoral, right? Would you say that neither are immoral choices? Wait, can you say the choices again? You, you actually kind of broke so, up there, and I, I think I may miss. Oh them. yeah. So there's two buttons in a room. One is one gives five hundred dollars to charity, and one gives a thousand dollars to charity. Button is what I missed. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so to press the the button with a that gives a thousand dollars to charity, that's a that's a moral action, right? You would say like you, the action of pressing a button, and the five hundred dollars is also a moral action. It's just less moral. It's just not not as like virtuous or not as I don't know what you would what, you, what phraseology would you would use. Um, so he points out that in order to accept this this philosophy student, uh, one of my Discord uh, members, great guy, uh, he'll probably do a review of this conversation and he'll pull it apart. Everything I got wrong, um, but he says in order to accept that there is a truly good God, you have to accept what, like he could have created a universe in which the only two options were good. Uh, and even better. Mm -hmm. The fact that there are choices that are evil disproves the idea of a good God in his mind. Mm. Yeah, so, I think... That... Oh, so continue, just, just to continue, um, regarding virtue ethics, uh, like a, a greater idea, a, a bigger concept, right, and that, that God's... We could still accomplish that with this room of two buttons, $500 or a 1000 right? And um, obviously that's a, that's a very simple idea, but it encapsulated as the choices we have each day between different actions right so so what are your thoughts on that so i, I want to answer it with some questions before i get into details but would you want to live in that world yeah okay good uh, that's what i expected you to say would you want to read about that world or yeah. would you prefer to read about uh lord of the rings 
Well, pick that's one. that's not fair. Lord of the Rings is an amazing book. You can't. Yeah. Well, here, that's, but that's my po- that's my point though, and I picked that on purpose because in that world, you basically have creatures that never have to be worry about being courageous. They never have to worry mm-hmm. about being compassionate because compassion can only real compassion can only happen if someone is feeling sorrowful. They're feeling sad. Uh, and so like to really experience that, that virtuous, that virtue itself, there has to be some sort of pain going on. Courage is Aristotle talks a lot about courage, you know, to be courageous, which we think is a moral good. Uh, there has to be some sort of threat, some sort of danger going on there. And so the reason I brought up Lord of the Rings is because one of the things that we have to accept though, is that if we say there's a world where there is none of that, that moral evil or badness that's happening, there isn't going to be any of these uh, triumphant virtues of overcoming evil, be- becoming triumphant, seeing the defeat of it. And I think subconsciously, intuitively, we tend to accept that those worlds are more interesting and better because the stories themselves that come out of them are far better. We definitely prefer to read about Lord of the Rings versus a world like Teletubbies because they don't have to worry about dealing with like moral evil. But we say that the characters that come out of Lord of the Rings are so much more interesting because they have taken evil head on. They ha- and they mm-hmm. had suffered through it. And it was so, and to see them overcome it, it's, you relate to them in so much more ways, but you love them so much more. You think they, they're so much more better. They've come to such better spots. Now, if God is, of course, outside of our world and he's going to write a story, so to speak, I wouldn't say he's like a determinist one, but a story, so to speak, I think he's going to write a world where there is uh, triumphant evil. There's triumphant, there's triumph and there's evil. There is evil and there is suffering, but it is overcome and that creates a far better story. That creates far better and more virtuous creatures that understand what they went through. And it makes it them far much more deeper, uh, makes them much more deep, deep, deeply intellectual, deeply loving, deeply moral, that he can have much more fulfilling relationships with. The biblical worldview is the idea that God is a relational being and he has created us to have relationships with us, that that's what he wants. Well, if he wants truly deep, fulfilling relationships, uh, then very much this idea that he's going to create a world where there are creatures that go through suffering, that go through evil, but ultimately overcome it in triumph to create more deep, fulfilling relationships. And to bring up Lord of the Rings again, we see this in the Silmarillion. So Eru uh, begins with the Einar. He sings the song of creation that becomes the world of Arda. And then Melkor, who's Morgoth, comes in. He starts sowing discord into the creation. And Eru arises from his throne three times and overtakes it and brings it into harmony, saying, you know, like, you meant this for evil, but I'm going to use it for good. And this is basically what they he then shows the Einar. This is the story of Arda that you're going to go, that some of you will go live through and experience what that song was. And we would say, well, what if Melkor never sowed discord in the song? Well, you wouldn't have the evil. You wouldn't have the flight of the Noldar. You wouldn't have the War of Wrath. You wouldn't have the Second Age with the fall of Numenor, uh, the rise of Sauron, and then the defeat of Sauron at the end of the Third Age. And we would say that that story has created much more interesting people, much more triumphant people, much more knowledgeable, much more insightful people, a much better story. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that we would say that God would prefer. Ultimately, he will triumph over evil, but it's going to create much more relational, stronger beings along in, in the long way. So he allows for evil, allows for chaos, so that through that we may grow and we, we, through that through that we may grow. And through that growing, we come closer to him, grow more and become truly beings that are worthy to judge angels one day. Okay. Um, I, I've got a couple of questions, but my first uh, question is, why do you think Lord of the Rings is better than Genesis? How dare you, sir? 
It is it's clearly better. You just we just use Lord of the Rings as like an, okay. an amazing example, but you didn't I use will... Genesis because it's way better story. Well, I used Lord of the Rings because you said it was a great story, and that was trying to relate to you. But here's the thing: uh, I'll give you this. I would say I would say Lord of the Rings is better than Genesis only, but I would say that the biblical story in its full complete picture is better than Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien would have agreed. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> so you you are, you said would you rather um, live in a live in a world where I can read a book? Uh, where I can read read a sorry. Would I rather read a book about someone in a room pressing buttons or Lord of the Rings? Right. That's the that's the mm. question you asked. Um, I want to pose the question to you. Would you rather live in a world where Lord of the Rings exists but children are sex trafficked, or in a world where Lord of the Rings doesn't exist but children are not sex trafficked? So, in a world where Lord of the Rings doesn't exist but children are not sex trafficked. Is that versus one with it? Here's yeah. what I would say in reply. Um, I would rather live, uh, I would rather go through a dream world where I will wake wake up. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring this around where there is Lord of the Rings and there's sex trafficking because everyone wakes up from the dream and then they realize the pain it causes is over and done with. And this is my view on the problem of evil as well. When I talk about it in my video is that the suffering itself when we die, it's almost like waking up from a dream. We wake up to a more real world with God. So it's like you go through that suffering only for character development and then you come out of it on the other side. Now, my emotions tell me right now that I would rather live in a world without sex trafficking, obviously. Like that's where my emotions are going to go. But if you could, but if, let, let me let me say it with another different thought experiment. Uh, would I, let's say somebody came to me and said, uh, uh, your daughter, uh, I'm gonna put her into like a dream state that's gonna last a day, but it's gonna feel like 20 years, but she's gonna go through all this suffering in the dream and she's gonna, but she'll come out of it. She'll just be fine and she'll have all this, knowledge now that she wouldn't have had without going through that it's going to give her such insight into growth and so like on her 18th birthday this is going to happen i might say that that would be okay because a it's not going to cause any lasting damage it's not going to actually like ruin her it's just going to make her more mature and develop in a much better way that may actually give her more life experience that's going to help help her better in this world uh, i i personally would be okay going through that myself going into a dream state and coming out with all, all this advanced knowledge that I now have. Mm. Uh, of course, I'd let her decide because she's 18, but you get the idea of what I'm trying to get out here. Uh, but I would say that from God's perspective, that's kind of what it's like for us is that we're in this like lesser world uh, and we wake up into a more real world. And then it's like when you wake up from a dream, I've had dreams where like my family dies and I come mm. out of it. And I had a dream recently where I, I, I had one of those and I realized how, how important they were to me. Like I would be living selfishly lately and I was, I need to focus more on them and how good they were. And having gone through that dream, it made me go, holy crap, I, I need to appreciate them more. Well, that's what I would say suffering is like from God's perspective. We wake up into the real world with him and it's all for character development, but it doesn't cause lasting suffering. Well, I, I did not expect you to bite that bullet, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I've had conversations with um, Muslims about immoral anti-realism where I had to bite really uncomfortable questions about um, incest and things like that. So take my hat off to you for, for uh, being able to say that. But like, well, on, me, honestly, say, the reason why I bite the bullet is because I, I have come from studying to recognize how important virtue is, how important like the growing in virtue is. But isn't it only important in whatever universe and world that we've created that that's been created by God? He could have created a world where virtue means nothing, and we're only evaluating it as subjectively important because of the world we've grown up in. Yeah, but I would say that I think when I don't know if that's possible that God could create a world where virtue isn't important, because I mean, he, I, when I he could have. well, I say virtue. when God's omnipotent, 
he's still bound by certain logical rules. Like he can't create a square circle. I mean, he's wait, not. Wait, wait. Really? Because God can't. So wait. So is do you believe that God created these rules? No, like, I think lot. Here's my thing about logic. If we're talking about logic in a metaphysical sense. Logic is simply mm -hmm. what is and what is possible. So, like, God cannot create a world where two plus two equals five because that just doesn't make sense logically. Uh, it's not like He's bound by those rules. That's just simply what it is. Uh, and so, omnipotence mm -hmm. does not mean the ability to do anything. It just means He's all powerful and He has power over everything in existence. It does not mean He could cease to exist. It does not mean He could get COVID uh, because He's he's an omnipotent being so and if he's not all powerful he could not get sick or he could not cease to exist uh you know the bible says like you know god cannot stop loving us he just simply cannot mm. he's bound by that role uh now it's not so much that he's bound by it like it's some sort of external role it's just a fact of logic so when i say yeah. go and bring bring this back to the virtue thing if you're going to create rational free beings uh that you want to grow and have relationships with i don't think you could create a world where those types of beings exist and virtue is not essential well, you, couldn't you create a world where the only options were good options? Yeah, you could, but I don't think that's going to create, as I talk about, the triumph over evil, the or uh, the idea of building truly virtuous characters get to experience compassion and courage and overcoming evil and the triumph of that growing through that kind of sense. Yeah, sure, but we wouldn't need to triumph over evil because there would be no e evil. Exactly, but my my position is is that a world where the evil is allowed. And there is triumphant good. There is triumphant virtue. That is ultimately more desirable or better than a world without that. And I use examples like pop culture or stories we write. And I, I argue that we implicitly almost agree with, or we implicitly agree with God on that. Because when we write stories, we write stories of overcoming evil and triumph and people, characters going through suffering only to overcome. We don't write typically stories, unless they're for kids, about people who never have to experience that stuff. We seem to agree but, those worlds are better. But to me, yeah, I understand that. And and um, please don't take my demeanor as I'm getting like, you know, I'm, the whiskey's settling in. I'm, you know, we're still friends. Yeah, go for it. Still, still happy. But the the so to me, like that, all of this points to a few things. One, it points to the idea that humanity created the concept of God, right? If God if God could create this universe of like anything, his all-knowing, all-powerful, and yet he chose to create something that we write about to this day, even people who are non-religious. To me, that, that speaks more to the idea that God was a created concept from our rational thing. But the, the second thing is, uh, and, the, and the more important thing is, I think that the you've hit the nail on the head where I think that, and I don't think that you are an immoral person, and I don't think that, or anything like that, um, but... I think that the thinking that you've like demonstrated a little bit is part of the problem that religiosity has in the world in that, uh, you know, overcoming virtue, instead of improving, instead of like looking at things rationally, you know, like for example, women drivers in Saudi Arabia, it's like, it, there's like some idea of like, it's virtuous for, you know, um, women not to drive. It's virtuous for men to have authority over them and things like that. Like, the concept of of virtue and the it makes sense why we have so much good people doing bad things. Like it, it's like you know that quote that edgy when I was an edgy atheist, edge lord atheist um, in my edgeless atheist days when I first deconstructed my faith, I would quote that that saying um, 
uh, it takes a good man to do good things and a bad man to do bad things, but for a good man to do bad things, that takes religion. And for me, that demonstrates, you know, that, that's a, uh, that's almost like a classic, right? But that, that almost demonstrates, that thinking almost demonstrates that point a little bit. So, so for me, like, uh, anyway, keep going. Re so reply to what I'm saying. Did we create God? Uh, and the, does that aspect show it? I would say, no, I think it, it shows how we reflect our creator, that we were created in his, we're, we're living beings created to have relationships with him. Uh, and so we're going to have the same sort of qualities or same sort of uh, virtues or same sort of like rationale in a lot of ways that he will have. So we reflect him in a lot of ways. It's not so much this idea that we create God in our image, that we're if we're created in God's image, we're going to reflect him in certain ways. And with the second thing, I, I hope I'm understanding you correctly. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but this idea that it takes you know religion to do bad things. Uh, sociologically, I just I just don't think that's the case. I'm not saying that we sort of force suffering onto people. I'm not saying we force evil onto people. Of course not. Um, I'm saying that that is allowed in this world uh, because um, it does allow for more virtue building. It does allow for more uh, uh, rationale building as well. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we are ever called to sort of enforce that on the people because we're not, of course, uh, in charge of things. We have been called to act in love and to act in, on good accord. We're not called to be the parent, so to speak, I guess you could say. Like mm -hmm. we would like you would say, like, it's OK for you to discipline your child. But if one of your other children is going to discipline that child, you'd be like, that's not your job. You don't have the you're not in the position to do that. You've not gotten to the place where you can understand the maturity of what it takes to do this you're not there yet. And so we need to respect but, that position. Well, what I, what I kind of, what I kind of mean by that is, so if we traveled back to the Atlantic slave trade, for example, right. Uh, you could have like a rational agent. <laughs> you got to pour that more. We've got to get more whiskey in there. Oh, um, dry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you, you can have like a rational person come back to the Atlantic slave trade and be like, Hey, look, um, these people, although they have a different skin color are people. And they shouldn't be, you know, subjected to uh, the ownership of another person. Now, a good person, like literally, there would probably a lot of the slave traders were probably evil people. But for the the average person that buys a slave, you know, part of the culture or whatever, they may be a good person, but they may justify it with virtue ethics, with, um, or not virtue ethics, but what you've talked about, or with like the idea of like a greater story or hierarchy or the caste system or um or like the bible you know stating that you know take the uh you know giving you instructions on how to keep slaves so for, for me when i say that it takes a good man to do good things a bad man to do bad things but for good men to do bad things that takes religion it's not necessarily talking about religion as in like judaism christianity islam hinduism it's talking about that that, that way of thinking that concept mm -hmm. of like there's a greater good there's a bigger picture uh where where i think that bringing and um, this doesn't matter at all but bringing things back to uh where i, I kind of am at at the moment moral anti-realisms um, subjective morality uh things like that I, I i don't to me it paints the picture of a deity to be uh evil kind of right <laughs> So uh, I mean, I mean, there were even there were even there were even young. I mean, even some of the early Christian sects, like as you probably know, like Mar the Mar Mar people who followed Marcion rejected the Old Testament God because they considered him an evil deity. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, and this is before the Bible was canonized. You know, it's like, it's like that's a that's a big deal for for for, for Christians to accept to to reject the Old Testament God for the evil that is reported in there. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. So I mean, this, these aren't new ideas. 
Uh, yeah. So let's talk about the, the 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 slave trade example. You're going back, like you know, we wouldn't go back in time and say no. We need to, you know, keep letting this go on. We we would if we were somehow sent back in time. I think you and I would actively fight such a thing. Yeah, of course. But yeah, and I would agree with that. Because you're a good boy. Don't call me. That's creepy. <laughs> what do you think this is? <laughs> hey man, we're like we're best friends, all right. You need it's to like, just accept the fact that we're best friends already, and just um. <laughs> Sorry, hang on. I just need—I do need to bring this up in my drunken state, and then we can get back onto some serious topics. So, I, uh, Michael, and I have a bit of a, a bit of a fun kind of a, uh, relationship online. Um, so, I'm—you know—I'm I'm reaching out to Michael for help. You know, I'm like, you know, Michael, I—I uh, I really want to get Cameron from Capturing Christianity on my channel. You know, so I tweet to him. I'm like, Hey, Cameron, I've—I've I've sent you an email. I would love to have you on Deep Drinks podcast to learn more about your faith and your journey. Uh, and then I said, I tweeted, I—I I, I added you. I said, Inspiring philosophy can vouch that I'm a good boy and will not operate in bad faith. Hoping to hear back from you soon. Michael's response, <clears throat> I can totally vouch for David. We met in a dark alley once where he offered me candy. Everything after that was a bit fuzzy, but the candy was excellent. Um, so as you can, so yeah, Cameron hasn't been on deep drinks yet. Um, so, uh, so thank you for that. <laughs> he should have known uh, I was joking. He should know yeah. me at this point. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be good to it'd be good to have him on because um, I think he's the perfect Christian troll. He says things that he knows <laughs> is gonna like like by the way Jesus is God or something or by the way Jesus is perfect and then like everyone gets triggered by it. And I love it. It's so good. Anyway, by the way, even back to what you're saying. <laughs> whiskey, I got whiskey. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm quite intoxicated at this stage, but keep going. All right, back to the serious stuff. So yeah, uh, let's go. Like so. As I was talking about, if we were sent back in time, we would be fighting that type of thing. Because again, my, my whole position on virtue ethics is not so much that like we experience suffering and that's that's it. My all my also point is that we also overcome it, we triumph over it. That's also important for the story. That's also an essential aspect, especially for something like Lord of the Rings. It's not like Eru Luvatar creates a world where there's just always these dark lords that are always causing problems. The biggest and most important part of the story is when they're triumphed over, when they're defeated. So, and I would say that's what our aspect is in this world. It's we are called to go out and triumph over the suffering and the evil and to defeat it through ethics, through science, through inventing medicine, these types of things. And that itself also helps build virtue. That builds character in a lot of ways because then we get to see uh, what it's like to defeat these things and we go, wow, that's incredible. Let's do more of that because look at, look at what it turns us into, these virtuous soul-building creatures. So it's not so much this idea that suffering itself is like the full story. No, it's there, but the triumph over it is just as is not only just as important, it's more important itself. So that's also just if and that's that's more important for building virtuous uh, creatures. Okay. Uh, will there be free will in heaven? Yes, but for the same, but let me ask you this question. Uh, do you put <laughs> um, random objects you find on the ground in your mouth? Uh, sometimes, but but not all the time. Yeah, not recently. Not since no, you were like not three. not recently. Yeah, no, yeah. that's since you were like three. But yeah, that's my uh, general point. Is that yeah, there will be free will in heaven, but we're not going to sin because it'll be like you know when a toddler puts objects in its mouth. We don't do that now because we know better. We'll have been sanctified and matured so much. We'll know that no, we won't be doing it at that point. But I mean, of course, there's free will in heaven because there was a war in heaven. How did that happen? If there was no free will. Yeah. So like my this is the conversation I always have with um, people who point me to your videos is, um, is, uh, is people, 
people say that we need the ability to have free will uh, in order to make decisions, right? We need the ability to do evil. But like, or, or sorry, they'll say that that we we God needs to essentially hide from us um, in, in, because this is a different discussion, but God needs to hide from us. Otherwise, we would, uh, there'll be no reason for faith and God wants us to have faith in his existence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is, is like, that I see with that is the devil knew God fully, right? He knew who God was and he still chose to sin under Christian theology and he was still rejected from the kingdom of heaven. Will we have that option in heaven? What do you think? Or this, or the new earth, I should say, um, where will we have the option to reject God? I think it's possible. I would say it would probably be exceptionally rare because again, we've already gone through the suffering and the choices and the evil. So at that point that we don't, it's like, back to lord of the rings frodo let's say that he could choose on his way to valinor could choose to jump off the ship and swim back to middle earth uh let's say he's got that option okay well he's probably not going to because he understands he's you know at that point you know this is definitely the best option for him and he wants to live a flourishing life yeah so why can't we just do that now why can't god reveal himself and be like yo heaven uh come to aisle four that's where heaven is uh the stairways to heaven and uh and people who don't want to come like why can't we do that now and then and just dismiss all this suffering along the way so let me let me just ask this. if the earth is clearly round why are there flat earthers um because of 4chan and like their means i don't know i don't know i don't know i mean i think this is something that no one wants to accept not even me we choose the psychology we want in a lot of ways we choose a lot of these things we're not purely rational machines. There's a lot of emotion that goes into our decisions. I fully acknowledge a lot of my decisions for being Christianity. I could say a rational, a mix of rational and a mix of emotion. No, it's not uh, rational. If Christianity is true, the argument is, is that is that you know there, there's a lot of emotion that goes into these choices, and a lot of what uh, what's out there is so. Was it Pascal? I believe who said this is that there's enough evidence for God's existence for anybody who truly is is seeking and wants to know. But it's also not forced upon us in the way that we just have to accept it. It's left in this sort of ground that where people who seek God can do it. Now, you as an atheist, you're not going to agree with me because you don't think there's enough evidence for God's existence. Fair enough. But I'm just saying, if Christianity is true, that would be the that would be the, the, the explanation for it. And then that's where the conversation needs to have. It needs to be, excuse me. Excuse my grammar. I don't know if you have a... Uh have a channel where or or something where you have conversations with people um like long form like this but if you did i'd be happy to come on to tell you why i don't have evidence for um why i, don't, why I went from would it, willing to sacrifice my life for christianity to no longer accepting it as true because i think there's a it's a long conversation to have there but i think that you might be able to um to offer some new insight on on my perspective there because you, well, here, you view Christianity very differently than I did. Here's to say is I don't like to psychoanalyze people. I don't. I don't know what's in your thoughts. I can't say, well, the reason why you made these choices is obviously because you just want to sin and you just want to drink alcohol and no longer speak in tongues. And that like, you know, I can't say that. That'd be ru- not only rude, it would be from a place of ignorance. Uh, mm. So because we can't like psychoanalyze people, I'm not going to pretend to. The best I can do is say, here's why I'm convinced. Here's the evidence. Let me try to point you to it. But if you're not convinced, ultimately, I have to say that's between you and God. He's going to know your thoughts better than you or or I can for sure. So that's yeah. between you and him. And there's nothing more I can do. Maybe you're completely justified. But if that's the case, my view on Christianity is, is that 
the only people that are in hell are the people who want to be there. If there is a truly rational disbelief, then God will make it right in some sort of afterlife state. It's not this idea that everyone is going to go to hell because they didn't get the right information or something. So truly, if there are people out there that just got bad information or got corrupt along the way, I don't think they're condemned to hell at all. Well, that's good. So I might be in heaven. I'll be a good boy. With, uh, well, a... <laughs> you are going to be because the moment I die, I'm going to come haunt you and make sure that you. <laughs> I'm going to start like what I'll do uh, is you'll walk through a bookstore and I'll just knock a Bible on the ground and like give you signs like you know. Something. Well, you know what? If that maybe that is better than Lord of the Rings. Um, that's a fun uh, idea. So I did actually tell my story a little bit on Nuria Khan's stream. Uh, we we did a like a three. Well, almost a four-hour conversation where I did, talked about that. Nuri Khan is a ex-Muslim. Um, oh, obviously, thank she's, God. she's she's there in um, she's there in <laughs> Mecca, and uh, as you can tell, I'm in a back room of Mecca there. So uh, she's I was actually in one of those back rooms. That's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my! Um, sometimes, honestly, though, when it comes to Islam, sometimes I see some of the stuff they say, like when they're like trying to justify the marriage of Aisha, or they're talking about like. Uh, like slavery and this stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, we, me and the atheists, we got to join forces and go after because this is just pure <laughs> evil. It's sometimes like, so I'm trying to justify uh, marriage to a nine year old. Uh, myself, you and Nuria should uh, do like a stream together where we just, um, cause it, it's, it was good fun. We had some Muslim callers and stuff. And one Muslim caller was, uh, uh, he said, uh, his, his thing said, only good hadiths, no bad hadiths. And I was like, this is like, he was, he was a good, he was a character. It was great. But um, we do have some, some questions, but before we get into questions and people, please uh, post some questions. Um, are you okay to go over a couple of minutes? Uh, we're at one hour 20, but. Uh, um, only if I'm allowed to drink more. Yep, absolutely fine. Um, okay. That's what we do here. Um, you know, although a lot of guests, by the way, think that we have to drink alcohol. You don't have to drink alcohol. I've had Derek on here. We've drunk. Um, I drink coffee. I have a Satanist coming on, by the way, Michael, who wants to drink tea and scones. So it's just weird to me that the Christian philosopher chooses scotch what a loser. And, this, and the Satan chooses tea and scones. Yeah, well, well, there's your message right there. Come to Jesus. We got this fun <laughs> stuff. I mean, a freaking tea over there. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus knows how to... Where was Jesus' first miracle? Turning water into wine? We know what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. Come at me. I, I do want to, as a, um, as a plant-based boy... Um, I'm using the word boy now all the time just because I know you don't like it. But um, as a plant boys boy, <laughs> I, I mainly eat a vegetarian slash vegan diet. I'm not, you know, I still have leather boots. So I sometimes have cheese if it's there. But um, for the most part, I, I try and remove as much oh, animal, uh, animal suffering as possible. Um, I imagine that be, uh, that you're not a vegan or a vegetarian or anything. So um, I've got the moral high ground here. Please explain animal suffering. So for one thing, I will say that I try to, we only, we spend a lot of money to make sure we get like farm-based animals. We try to like not support factory farming as much as oh, we can. Cute. So like we bought a whole cow. It's in the deep freezer in that room back there from a, like a local farm in mm. here. They're raised ethically and that, because we're trying to, and I've said like once clean meat comes on the market, I'm wait, all on board. Wait, so, wait, so it's, it's, um, it's raised ethically. When was it, how old was it when it was killed? Pretty old. They make sure they get oh. bigger. Oh, okay. So it was like 25 years. Is that how old they... Cause I don't know exactly. Oh, My wife knows more yeah. on that. But I mean... Oh, uh, but yeah, I, of, I, I... I'm just kidding. I'm just trying. I'm just pulling it. Anyway, keep going. We're not going to turn into a vegan conversation. But so, in, in regards to... Just let me just get this out. I'm just going all over the place. But animal suffering. Um, in in Australia, in uh, 2020, we... You know, I was... You know, I had to remove... I had to leave my home. 
there's bushfires everywhere, crazy, crazy amount of stuff. I had to live on, sleep on my mum's floor. And in that, 143 million mammals and 2.46 billion reptiles and 181 million birds and 51 million frogs uh, were killed by bushfires. Mm -hmm. um, checkmate, Christian. No, so how, how do you explain animal uh, suffering? So my question is, is, why don't you go out and just finish them off? If you want to really reduce suffering, think of the countless generations that are going to come in the next thousands upon thousands of years of life that's going to experience suffering of, of herbivores that are going to be torn apart by carnivores. Why are we not going out trying to make sure that this doesn't happen? If suffering is so bad for life, why do we fight so that life can still exist in things, places like the rainforest where it's chaotic and there's suffering? Why do we fight for the rainforest to continue? And this is what the philosopher Justin Mooney has said, that this implicitly suggests that we understand there's some intrinsic goodness about life, that the intrinsic badness of suffering can never overdo, it can never outweigh it. So we, if we truly believe that somehow suffering uh, was so bad that it, it, should be, it should be enough to disprove like the idea that life should exist, then why do we actively fight for life to continue to exist in places where there's going to be continual suffering? suffering for generations. Why are we not trying to wipe out lions? They're going to keep eat gazelles for hundreds of years. We understand there's some intrinsic goodness there about life itself that, that outweighs the suffering regardless. So my response is, you know, put your mouth where your money is. If you truly thought the suffering was, was more bad, why are we not trying to wipe out the rainforest and all life in general? Because think of the generations well, we could save. Well, we like, okay. So um, one, I do know, vegans who actually do say that they say that if we if there was a um, predatorial human that was running around um killing gazelles we would um either imprison them or put them to death like it would be something that you know a predator killing sentient beings so they they actually say that yes we should be killing lions tigers um predatory animals um and we should be you know wiping them off the face of the planet um in regards to herbivores those like that that um cow um in your freezer um miss betty um so in regards to you know they're herbivores they eat you know um uh grass grass and things like that yeah so um so first of all there are people who say that so if i was to take an antinatalist position a position that we shouldn't breed any more um uh more animals into existence we shouldn't breed any more humans into existence what would you say to that um, I would say that uh, I think that goes against our intuition on this, that somehow there is some sort of intrinsic goodness about life itself, uh, and mm. that it, this seems to be a violation of what just seems to be the way it, it, it is. Life itself but, is so intrinsically good, we, we understand that it, we should continue on and not just stop existing now, just because it may experience suffering in some way. But does your intuition tell you that it's okay to like murder an animal? Or kill an animal, I should say, um, for taste pleasure. I would say it's okay. I would say um, my position on this is that I think humans are naturally carnivorous. Our ancestors were for millions of years basically hyper carnivores, and that the mm -hmm. most optimal diet for at least for me, because I did try to go vegan and vegetarian, well vegetarian at one point, and I started getting sick. I couldn't do it. I got was very tired when I put meat back in my diet. I started feeling better. And my mother, for example, is someone who is like allergic to everything on planet earth like any sort of plant-based protein and when she just basically eats meat she does she experiences a lot less problems uh so i would say that meat is essential for us to live a flourishing life from an aristotelian perspective starting with mm -hmm. the vegetable level then the animal level and the human level but the vegetable level that aristotle talks about i forget the exact term he uses um, 
crap, it's escaping me. But it's this idea that if we're living a flourishing life, we have to be nourished properly. And I would say for, yeah. me, for me and for a lot of humans, meat is required for us uh, to be nourished properly so that we can continue to live that flourishing life. Um, so I don't know if you think the World Health Organization is like conspiratorial or whatever, but they say a vegan diet is like a whole food plant-based vegan diet is acceptable for all stages of life and, uh, and that it's, uh, perfectly healthy, but well, I'll, I'll admit, I'm not an expert on that, but I can tell you my mother would probably be dead in five years if that was the case. She cannot okay. eat certain things because like she can't eat nuts, peanuts, pea, she's allergic to pea protein of all things. Like, uh, like, like Wait, she's, she's but, celiac, so she can't. So what eat, is, she can't? Can eat gluten? She's celiac. Like she's allergic to everything. Yeah, that's that's horrible. What does she eat though? Like beef, chicken, meat, meat yeah. beef, chicken. So where where do those meat? Where do those um those? Where does that meat get its protein from? From it, from plants. So yeah, let's just eat the. Well, you could just eat the plants, right? Well, but she can't. Like she literally <laughs> gets sick from that. Like the, the thing is that our digestive system is different than a cow. It can break down certain things. Like a koala lives on eucalyptus leaves because they have digestive system built to break that down. If mm. you and me were in a tree, a eucalyptus tree, we would die because we don't have the digestive system no. to break down those leaves. It's it's like we yeah. have we for millions of years we've eaten meat. We've evolved this way. That's the most, in my view. Now, again, there are plenty of people that can live just fine on a vegan diet. I don't think I can. My mother definitely can't. Uh, and the, I, so, I, meat is essential. I, I reckon you could, and I'm only doing this so you get an influx of um, vegan um, debaters. Yeah, I knew you were doing that. Yeah, they're going to come after me now. Yeah. <laughs> no, but um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff. Um, here know, they come. But, they're already yeah, typing. Yeah. Already You're typing. Ah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I I do so. Regardless of the vegan thing, right? Like that's 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 a non non sequitur. But in regards to like animal suffering, so for example, we have uh, we have friends who uh, live in a bit of a commune and they raise their own beef uh, mm -hmm. and then they kill it at like one year of age or two years of age, whenever it's like viable when it stops being profitable. And um, and they also raise their own lambs and things like that. And uh, and they were t talking about how they were killing these animals, right? And they were talking about how. They tried to cut through its throat, um, but it didn't. It didn't go. Th it didn't go through. It was. A, it was like a bread knife that was blunt, and it took three times of going through this um, lamb's throat to to get it to die. Now, cruel, obviously cruel. Like everyone accepts it's cruel. Like you're not even gonna. Um, as a dirty meat eater and an atheist, we're sitting here saying cruel, right? But um, and I'm meat eater. Yeah, with I showered today. I'm not dirty. Like, yeah, don't, 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 don't judge me. I'm a little tipsy, but. So these people said, uh, my wife was horrified at this. I wasn't there. They never bring up these conversations when I'm there because I'd like to argue. My wife doesn't. <laughs> so my, my, my wife said, you know, that's horrible. And they rebuked her. And they said, hang on. God gave us these animals to have dominion over. Don't go too far to the left or too far, like politically left or too far into, like God gave us these animals to have dominion over, to... Um, and my wife Amy told me this, um, and I was like, "Why? Why are they always?" Yeah, my wife's name is Amy. Hey, <laughs> we're, we're like parallel universe twins. We did still we want to do that. Be, um, did we just become best friends? <laughs> we yes! still want to do that. Uh, that uh, that's that um, video game playing to Mario Kart when we we talked about it. Um, oh yeah, I think it'd be fun. But um, because you said that uh, if you win, I have to become a Christian again. 
And if um and if I win, you have to say, "Well done, good job, you won." Yeah. So um, anyway, uh, <laughs> it's so totally fair. <laughs> it's only fair. So um, I'll become a Christian again, and I'll deconstruct again. It'll be a whole nother. I'll go through my edgeful <laughs> atheist day. Sorry, very drunk. Um, or very tipsy. That my wife said, um, "Hey, uh, that seems quite cruel," and she was rebuked. And I wish, I wish I was there. I would have loved, why didn't they bring it up when I was there? Because the first thing I would have said is, why did God give animals pain receptors? Why couldn't he have formulated a different kind of thing that said, you know, God's omniscience says, this animal's about to die in a horrific fire. This animal's about to have its throat slit with a blunt bread knife. This animal's going to, so therefore, switch off its pain receptors so it doesn't feel anything. And then therefore, the sacrifices of the Old Testament make sense. The eating of meat makes sense. You know, why, why couldn't that have been created? It seems cruel and unnecessary to give an, an animal pain receptors, but not allow them to turn them off at the time of death. I feel like if that was the case, we wouldn't have animals at this point because you have greedy, disgusting humans that would be going around, well, it's okay to shoot them. They're not going to feel anything. There'd be no respect. We'd have no respect for the livestock, no respect for nature because they're just not going to feel anything. We'll just go and kill them all. And I we feel saw like that. We already have that. <laughs> we, we already have saw, that. We saw that a lot in the 17 and 1800s where after mm. Descartes, we had this idea that animals were just sort of like biological robots. And look at the look at the problems that 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 sort of led to. And I think the understanding they do experience pain, they do deserve to have their species continue on is important and it help, helps us respect life in a lot of ways. Now, I don't think that's fully an answer, but it's just a part of it, I would say. Yeah, the, the, back in, I think it was the 18 or 1900s, they used to do surgery on dogs to show the anatomy um, in, yeah. in university, but they would do them when the dogs were alive and laugh at people who thought that the dogs yelping and screeching and like fighting was part of anything besides just nerve reactions, like something like a plant, like a flower opening up, which is like to, to now, as we, what we know about neuroscience and stuff, we're like, wow, that was insane to think that. Um, but that's what they thought at the time. Um, and I think that the, the, just to, just to kind of wrap this up on my perspective, I think the further and further we learn about the animal kingdom, how we did evolve from primates, which you accept, or alongside primates, we are primates, um, that, you know, the more and more we realize that we are part of the animal kingdom, we are animals, that this becomes a problem for, um, for monotheistic religions, well, at least outside of, um, uh, karma-based religions or or, or, or or something, which I think there's probably still a problem there, but it still becomes a problem for theistic religions, I, I would say. Well, I would say um, Trent Doherty wrote a book called on the problem of animal suffering, and he argues that they also uh, very likely have an afterlife that they can continue on in existence, and God is being, hmm. you know, infinite. I mean, he's not limited but about the amount of beings he can allow into heaven. Why not just continue on? Uh, so it's this idea that God very well could have just a lot of these animals that build an identity can continue on after existence and grow in ways that they were limited in their animal state in, in this life. So I don't, I don't think that's, that's necessarily the end of them. That's just their whole story. I think very well that they are also beings that could develop in an afterlife state where they could have a relationship with God in some way. So I think that's part of this, the picture, but there's a lot more going on there. Uh, mm -hmm. And I will also say the moment clean meat is mass produced, I am so on board. And I will stop eating any sort of animal that was killed. Yeah, well, I, I feel the same way about um, clean cheese and clean leather. If, as soon as I can get like work buys me non-leather boots and and cheese is just as good as regular cheese, like oh man, I'll get 
way fatter. Like, uh, you know, so like, um, actually on a bit of a diet at the moment, which is messing up my uh, alcohol intake a little bit because uh, I get a lot drunker quicker. So moving on to some questions and answers, if that's okay with you. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, we have a lot of questions have come, come through. Um, hang on a sec, let me just... Well, we're probably not going to answer them all. Sorry, people. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so I guess we'll ask. Uh, I got a, I got a couple of good questions. So, uh, so I'm just looking through. Okay. So not so much a question, um, but I liked um, to get both your thoughts about what is said about above Golem's actions being direct result of being corrupted by the ring. This is a you question. I have no idea. But I'd like your, both your thoughts about what I said about what did he say about Golem's actions being a direct result of uh, the corruption of the ring. So the ring corrupted him. Yeah, uh, the ring sort of corrupted him and made him into some to, to Golem who he was. Uh, but a lot of that also was his choices in the book. He killed Deagle to get the ring, whereas Bilbo, when he had the ring, he spared Golem. One of them had one of them freely chose pity, pity, and the other one did not. And Gandalf talks about this how because Bilbo chose pity, the rings could not corrupt him like it could corrupted Golem because he did not start it off with an evil act, he started off with an act of mercy. And thus, the message is that evil authoritarianism in Sauron's case is self defeating. Yeah, it's it's also this idea in Lord of the Rings. So in Lord of the Rings, at one point, Frodo is actually under, like, it seems to be under the ring spell, and he curses Gollum, and he says, if you attack me again, you will die. I put a curse on you. That's what happens. It's like Gollum tries to get the ring from him, and he falls into Mount Doom. It's almost like evil defeated itself. The ring created this, this curse in Frodo, which then led to Sauron's downfall. And it's a very big theme in Lord of the Rings that you don't need to fret about evil because Eru Iluvatar, the god of the world, has already ordained that evil is going to be defeated. And even though you will not be powerful enough to stop it, he is powerful enough to stop it, and he ordained that it will be that way. Okay. Um, I got a question from Ancha. Uh, this conversation is just a way of deflecting from my early question. What does Michael like on his pancakes, and why is it peanut butter and maple syrup? So, first of all, peanut butter is abomination from hell. It will cause me to stop breathing. Uh, so I, Are you yeah. allergic? Yeah. Why I did can't. God do that? Because he's <laughs> protecting me from... Well, I never liked peanut butter when I was a kid anyway, so he's protecting me from it. Uh, okay. <laughs> but obviously maple syrup and butter, and it has to be real maple syrup from Canada. Okay, Swift C, question. If God is morally progressive, then how come in the New Testament there is no not a no slavery verse am i misunderstanding the moral progressive argument so i would say that Good it, question uh, yeah so i would say that um david de silva wrote his book on honor patriarch and kinship and argues that this is it there actually is it's this it's in for philemon for example it's also in galatians this idea that uh there humans are equal that you don't treat a slave as if he is somehow less than you. And this led to, of course, um, as even atheists like Tim O'Neill have pointed out, the first abolitionists were Christians like Gregory of Nyssa, arguing from the Bible. The big abolitionist movements uh, of Britain were are Christians arguing from the Bible, whereas like a lot of the enlightened thinkers that were more atheists were arguing things like that we have like, we, the white European male is superior to the other races and we can do what we want with them. And so Tim O'Neill, who's an atheist, is 
um, he had, I think, Ted McCormick on his channel. They were talking about this a little bit, but uh, indirectly. Uh, but it was this idea that, you know, the Christians were the one at the time that were arguing for abolition because they thought the Bible, specifically the New Testament, taught this. So I think you can make an anti-slavery case from the Bible. Is it explicit? No. And the reason why it's not is because Paul is doing virtue ethics and virtue ethics is not lay down. Uh, necessarily direct commands. Virtue ethics is getting you is trying to teach you how to think about ethics, how to uh, understand virtue, and when you get that, then you know how to act. That is the main goal of Paul, and because he did that, that's why we see abolitionist movements coming out of Christian thought. Uh, just something that I thought of just now in my drunken state that we're going to have to do next time you're on, which I promise we will do one. Well, I hope you'll come on another time. Um, but we will just review cringy TikToks. We're going to do a video of that sometime on my main channel because that's initially what you suggested. Hey, Dave, let's do review cringy TikToks. And I said, no, let's discuss the problem of it. Yeah. You're, I was like, let's have some fun. You're like, no, I want to be super serious. <laughs> no, <laughs> we can do, we can do both. Hey, we can do both. It'd be great. Um, but, uh, but. What we're going to do next time in, in this is we're going to um, put a tier list together and you're going to rank each disciple and apostle. So we're going to like put them in. <laughs> That's, that is gold tier content, right? Obviously to... <laughs> Bartholomew is first. We all know why, what, of course. So anyway, moving what on. Did Bartho I don't know who, what Bartho Bartholomew <laughs> I don't know. I just said whatever. Oh, I've okay. been drinking too, man. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this is, yeah, I, I apologize, everyone. I'm, I am a little bit intoxicated. So someone, Space Citizen said, yeah. uh, if Adam slash Eve, in your view, were immortal and not the first humans in the garden connected to the tree of life, why were there, were all the other humans around at the time mortal? So I don't think they were immortal. I think that when, so the Bible, a lot of Old Testament scholars have pointed this out, like John Walton. Uh, when the Bible uses the word dust, it is often an idiom to mean mortality, like in Ecclesiastes 3. So when Adam is made from dust, when in Genesis 3, he said, you are dust and the dust you are return. Obviously, he is not dust at that point. He is a human being. But God says, you are dust. It's an idiom to say you're mortal. Uh, so they were mortal, and they were going to be allowed to be immortal by, give, by getting access to the tree of life. God cuts them off from it. So they were not immortal because they never got to the tree of life, that kind of sense. Uh, it, it, there was also possibly the idea that they had to keep eating from it to remain immortal. So they never were actually ontologically immortal. They were just, you know, maybe possibly given this special tree that allowed them to be immortal. But humans have always been mortal until the resurrection, of course. When, you know, you and me will be immortal because you'll be there, I promise. Yay. Talk to God for me so I can come. Um, oh, I can't. That's not how it works. You've read the Bible. <laughs> uh, so uh, I have a question. I have a couple of questions for you that I'd love to get your answer for. And I'd love you to take as much time as you need for this one. What is the most, most plausibly true religion you don't believe in? Okay, I got to think about this for a second because I'm trying to go back to all. <laughs> hey, man, Deep Dreams oh podcast. It's been well, like I spent 10 too long years. thinking of questions. <laughs> it's been like ten years since I put it on like another because I've been so focused on doing like apologetics and just focusing on reading, like studying the Bible and philosophy. That I, you know, it's like you like you read the other religion and you're like, okay, I'm not convinced by these. Anyway, let me now start getting deep into philosophy and biblical studies now. Uh, Okay, so I will I will start at the bottom. I would say at the bottom, Mormonism, Scientology, uh, then Islam <laughs> for sure. Like so, so get those three out of the way. Obviously, at the well, bottom. Can I can I ask quick quick 
quickly why Islam? Hello? Because I think it is okay. So for one thing, it says Jesus wasn't crucified. Something that Bart Ehrman says is just the most obvious fact from the ancient world. Like we know he was crucified. Your book clearly says he doesn't. Okay, you make quite. Did Muslims say that, or does the Quran say that? The Quran says Jesus wasn't crucified. Oh, okay. It okay. also says the Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea, and the Pharaoh of the Exodus definitely did not drown in the Red Sea. The Bible doesn't say the Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea. The Quran gets this wrong, so it has historical errors. But also ethically, I just think, oh, like it just it seems so incompatible with what we know intuitively to be the most ethical system out there that I just cannot, I, I can't even um, when it comes to that. In terms of its prescriptions, they'll, they'll attack the Bible and say, well, your Bible describes it. No, it has descriptions of patriarchs doing bad things. It has descriptions well, of things. You know, no, it doesn't have no prescriptions. I think Islam is horrible. Some of, some of the Quran is beautiful, actually. And so some of the Bible is beautiful. But no offense, but I feel the same way about the Bible. And it's, I feel like, and please don't take offense to this. Like, I love you. But like, it feels like the apologist game is to tap dance around these and make up excuses for why we know things like slavery are not okay. And things like, um, I well, know. I mean, I am fully willing to accept slavery exists in the Old Testament, though. And if you want more, since we, we don't have time to go into it, but see my video, the the misunderstood mosaic law and the imperfect mosaic law where I talk about those things. And I appeal to cultural context. So I want to study mm. it in its cultural context. That's my argument there. Okay. So right before this, you said, uh, um, so Islam, Scientology and Mormonism are at the bottom for sure. Okay. Uh, well, hang on a second. I, I just wanted to say that, uh, that I said that I was going to just scream at you why children have cancer for two hours. And then you said, I'll fight you. So just in regards to the slavery issue, um, we, we're going to do like a Logan Paul KSI fight uh, in a ring. And whoever wins is the, the uh, their, their worldview is the correct one. Are, that, are you sure you want to do that with me? I'm a second degree black belt. <laughs> oh, then definitely. Yeah. Because no, I'm kidding. I mean, <laughs> I get puffed I out used, getting into the ring. <laughs> I used to do things every Tuesday at my martial arts class called a thousand kick drills where we would do a thousand kick drills. Oh jeez, oh, <laughs> I did karate. I, I I got up to orange belt, but I felt like my sensei didn't want me to to give me the orange belt because because I <laughs> I, I wasn't good enough. But he, he technically passed me, so I never actually got the orange belt. But I got two. I got a yellow belt with two orange stripes. Anyway, what were you saying? Um, I would say maybe it'd be some sort of Eastern religion. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe buddhism perhaps i do like buddhism i do really like reading the literature and buddhism i think it's quite interesting maybe some new age philosophy as well as a possibility maybe even stoicism uh i man something that a religion? seneca kind of i mean what is a religion you define it um good luck because philosophers yeah. can't even exactly yeah. stoicism yeah. seems to kind of be but i mean when you read seneca man seneca is beautiful like I almost like sometimes I'm like man, like Seneca is just amazing. To just to show off some cool books, this book I picked up in um in Byron Bay. Have you read it? The thing about religion. No, I'm not. So the only reason it stood out to me is because it's worth seventy five dollars in a Byron Bay bookstore, and I was like, why is this worth seventy five dollars? Which is probably like fifty dollars US, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it is amazing. The reason it's so good is because it's so niche and but it's amazing and it talks about um you know uh -oh, about religion. Yeah, no, it's all right. It talks about religion from a like from a materialist perspective, like the things in religion. Fantastic. Definitely mm -hmm. recommend you read it. I think you'd be all about it. Um, okay, cool.
Uh, yeah, so finishing your question, stoicism. I don't know. I'd be some sort of like stoic, maybe like a stoic deist, perhaps like a neo-stoic, like not believe in or like pantheism, but maybe like all of those principles. Uh, that kind of sense. Uh, definitely very big into Aristotle for sure. Okay. Uh, if you could choose an afterlife, and it would, this is these are the questions I ask everyone now, and they keep growing. I had one, now it's two, now it's three, so we've got three. So if you could choose an afterlife and it would immediately become true for you, which afterlife would you choose? I'd be born as Frodo Baggins in Middle Earth. <laughs> is that a is that a proper afterlife? I would be born if you if honestly, if a genie I could make a wish, I would be born as Frodo Baggins in Middle Earth and go through all of his experiences, everything to Mount Doom. It was horrible, right? It was like a horrible Ex experience. Exactly. Gandalf. 100% Gandalf is way better than Frodo. Really? No, I'd be Frodo. No, absolutely be Frodo Baggins, yes. Well, well, I'd be your Sam, okay, Michael? Oh. I'd be your Sam. He was the chubby one. That's me. <laughs> okay, and last question, unless we have some uh, a few more questions, but this is the last question before we wrap up. And I'm not sure if I asked this the first time, but I'll ask it this time. What, if anything, would change your mind on the existence if, of God? If you shave your beard. <laughs> Don't tempt me. <laughs> no, see, you're not going to do it. I do it. Okay. Ah, nothing then. <laughs> Bonus question. What would you do if you discovered that um, you no longer believed in Christianity? Like, what would happen to Inspiring Philosophy? Would you give it to someone else? Or would you change the concepts around it to be... Uh, you know, okay, here's something I'll tell you that I've never told anybody. So don't tell yeah. anybody. So don't okay. put this online or anything. All right, all right. <laughs> Honestly, I chose part of the reason I chose inspiring philosophy because I was going through a doubting phase. And I was like, am I going to be a Christian in a year? And debating atheists online just made me, wow, their arguments suck in my view. I was like, this just makes mm. me continue on it, it was i was going through a hard phase i had just gone out of college i wasn't getting a job i was worried i wasn't going to provide for my wife which was a big thing for me and i was like i said i'm doing this stupid security job i'll make a channel and put some videos out there and see if anybody can you know convince me not to be a christian and uh i've struggled with that for years and now i'm, I'm more than willing to accept that i was going through that doubting phase and it was okay at the time and it made me into a better person uh but if I did deconvert, I would be something like a Tom Holland or a Tim O'Neill atheist. I recognize, obviously, that Christianity is a moral good. I recognize we need to keep it. We need to fight for it. That it has a lot of good history to it. It's brought us a lot of good. All of our ethics come from that worldview. And I would not definitely be an atheist apologist. I don't even understand some of these people who think that it would be great for religion to be completely wiped off the face of the earth. You obviously don't know history or sociology or psychology. I would be one of those people that says, look at all the good Christianity has done. We need to encourage it, even if I don't believe it. So I'd probably focus on the history of Christianity and all the good it brought about. I'd focus on sociology. A lot of the studies I've already been focusing on uh, showing that, you know, Christianity leads to all these moral goods, all these good sociological benefits, that kind of thing. Or I might just, you know, try to get really good at investing and live a pleasurable life and, you know, die peacefully or something. I mean, like, you know, that kind it's of fun thing. It's funny that people view, like, atheism is almost like a um nihilism like oh yeah just like you know like and and my relationship would become polyamorous and i would do drugs every day and like no. like it just seems like yeah uh no but, i mean um, but yeah definitely wouldn't be but yeah i was going through a phase where i was just sort of like let me just pick a channel name that you know maybe i could still continue on even if i don't become a christian but i mean like i think it worked out in the long run uh but you know it was just one of those times it's like 
this is not what I thought my life was going to be, you know? And then of course it got worse. I actually got worse. It's really kind of one of those ironies because it got worse until about 24. No. Uh, so like I started my channel 2011 when I was doubting and um, some certain things, but it was, it was more like emotional doubt. I feel like it was like, this is not how my life was supposed to be kind of thing. Uh, and then like <laughs> I started debating atheists and I started to get more strength into my face as my life feel like it got worse <laughs> like after that. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, it's weird the way that kind of worked out. And then like, honestly, it's like, it was just like a good, like six or seven years of just struggling, fighting and holy crap, we got a nickel. We can, we need to put that in the bank kind of thing. <laughs> Would you would you say that like your perspective changed in those years? Sorry, if this is if you want to go, just let me know. Just like give me a thumbs up or something, or in the chat. But like, I, this is interesting to me. Is something okay? Is it is this something that um, <laughs> is this something yes. that uh, <laughs> is this something that uh, like you? you change your perspective on like, were you like a young earth creationist following Kent Hoven? And then at that you point, went I was an your... old, earth. old earth creationist. Okay. Yeah. So you're not an old earth creationist. Now you're a theistic evolutionist as I remember. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So was, was a lot of that, do you think like the shedding of those like early ideas, the conflict between like, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Well, I mean, a lot of it was like, I mean, honestly, the best thing for me on, and this is why I said I would pick Frodo Baggins to go through his suffering, to go through his cause. I, I realized looking back on my life, I'm so happy I went through that stuff. It made me into what I am. And I would not change anything. If you could let me go back in time and change things, I wouldn't. I'm happy where I'm at. I'm glad that this that I am who God made me to be. And I'm thankful for all that that I went through. And I was just talking with a mother on TikTok. We did a TikTok live and then she posted on her YouTube channel. It's Joyful and Rising if anybody wants to listen to it. So it's a YouTube channel, Joyful and Rising, but she's much bigger on TikTok. And she's a mother of a special needs child. And she said the same thing. She would not go back and change things. We're happy for the suffering that God has given us. It has turned us into what we want to be. And we would not, we would not go back and change that. I thank God for making me an atheist. How, how, how <laughs> use my words against me, sir. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just mucking around. You know, you, you know, we're, we're good here. But the, and, and like something I, I joked about online before is like Christians hate him, atheists hate him, and Deep Drinks loves him. It, it seems <laughs> like you do get hate from both sides. Like it seems oh, like Christians. Do I, oh, do I ever? Like I get people annoyed are telling you to unalive Go yourself. Ahead. And it's just ridiculous. Like people are telling you to unalive yourself. And it's like, this is disgusting. Yeah, I, I, I always find it funny that, like, I, I saw a tweet a while ago, like a couple of years ago, but one atheist said, you Christians don't understand what we deconverted Christians go through with all the hate mail we get. And I was laughing. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah, okay. you don't. Like, I get it from the same people you get it from, but also I get it from people on your side as well. Like, I'm right in the middle. Like, so. Okay. All right. Yeah. So. I'm writing this down. So we're going to do a disciple slash apostle tier list. Then we're going to do a hate mail read. And we're going to read your hate <laughs> mail for that. <laughs> you know what? Recently I've been getting a lot of hate And we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. We did talk about Lord of the Rings. Uh, who are you getting hate mail from? Sorry, you said? A lot of people mad at me for on, for TikTok videos because I, I I responded to this, this black chick. Uh, she's a very charismatic, lovely girl. But she said this stupid thing that we have green skin. And I was like, have you looked in a mirror? Uh, we don't. No one does. And so I responded to her really bad arguments. But that video blew up on TikTok. It's got like 700,000 views. 
And I got a lot of good feedback from African-Americans that were happy, but I also got a lot of hate mail from some African-Americans who were mad at me for even going after a black woman. And I'm like, I never attacked her skin color. I think she's a lovely lady. I think she's charismatic. I think she's, her heart is in the right place. Her mind isn't though. She wants to learn Mm -hmm. more, but she's on the wrong path. And so I'm just correcting bad information. This has nothing to do with skin color, but it pissed a lot of people off. But, you know, it is what it is. But surprisingly, we get a lot of hate mail from that lately for some reason. Yeah, it's it's a weird it's a weird um, it's a weird thing. It's like the same with um, uh, and, and like, don't get me wrong. Like, um, I am a huge um, supporter of the LGBT community. Uh, I, I don't know what you're saying. Well, we won't go into that if you but I support <laughs> tr- tr- uh, transgender people and everything like I, I'm huge. But if you like if you disagree with a trans person online it, you you're you're called transphobic a lot of the time uh, about th- issues that aren't even related and this is what happened to me but i'm just i've just witnessed it that issues aren't even related to transgenderism at all like you could disagree on like the person to um to uh, a politician to vote for or I, I asked the question the other day is um because someone pointed out to me that uh, if you support um harry potter that you're uh, you're supporting transphobia, and I, I, I was like, that seems weird to me. So, but, but like, I was like, okay, like, I'm willing to learn. So, I posted a poll, and some people said yes, it is it is transphobic to support Harry Potter. Some people said no, no one said maybe. So, like, I'm willing to learn, but at the same time, like, that is, I don't know. Let's not get into that. I don't want to cancel myself. Um, but like, <laughs> I'm a huge supporter of. Um, it just seems horrible that these just just to on that it just seems horrible that these people have to like justify their existence all the time but anyway um i did want to there was one last thing i wanted to quickly mention oh i wanted to ask you is do you mind and if this is not okay um tell me tell me it's not okay um to pop your shirt off no i'm just kidding um to how <laughs> sorry, well, you're gonna you're gonna have to donate first before no, I'm kidding. have you got um <laughs> you've got some sick tattoos what is that tattoo i always see it what is it oh yeah uh, this is incomplete. I need to finish it, but I've not had the money to finish it. Uh, but it's it's supposed to be a Celtic wing that I want to sort of like. So, hold on. So, yeah, cool. Yeah. So if you could see that's that there. Cool. That's the first part. I want it to kind of go around the back and like come like over here. Almost like it's almost like an armor thing. So yeah. I'm thinking of maybe like doing like some sort of like thing here and then like finishing around the back. Like it's like an armor thing that would sit on me. And then but, I would um... get a Celtic cross somewhere in there as well. I've got somewhere in here. I've got the Celtic cross. Uh, you can't really see it, but anyway, I got a Celtic cross. Uh, Tupac had on his back, uh, and then Justin Bieber got it, and it was very uncool <laughs> for a while. Same cross, and then now Justin Bieber's cool, so it's cool. So anyway, <laughs> but what I wanted to ask was, um, and it says, therefore, if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed, which is a, a a scripture that spoke to me at a conference, and I ended up boiling my eyes out and it got tatted on me. But the oh. Something I do want to ask you though is how did your is it your wife Amy or your partner? Um, how did she did she has has her faith swayed at all in the process of you going all through this, or is she much like my wife where she's just wondering where the next glass of wine and cheese board is so she can like chill out and have a good time? I promised I would not talk about her online, so I'm not saying okay. That's fine. That's fine. We're we're Christians. I mean, that's that's all I'll say. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, yeah, no, no worries. Um, it's funny, funny with, um, like I said, with my wife, she's very much, uh, she's very much like, I like come to her with like, oh my God, our world, my worldview just collapsed. And she's like, okay, cool. Like, do you want a cheese board? I'm cutting up some, like, <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, like we're very much different and it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But anyway, 
Um, well, Michael, uh, thank you so much for coming on the Deep Drinks podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for staying longer than uh, 90 minutes. Um, it's been awesome. Uh, and everyone, make sure you go check out Michael's stuff. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's good fun, even for people who aren't Christians. Um, it's uh, he explores some really interesting concepts. The, you recently just released, um, besides the Lord of the Rings video that we're releasing soon, you recently released a episode on the Exodus and um, rediscovered, uh, which I would absolutely love to see you and um, Dr. Josh talk about that because obviously you might have different sort of opinions. Oh, I'd love but, to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would totally but, love to talk about the Exodus, like with anyone. Um, but I mean, I might fire hose my, my case just to be fair. Well, uh, to 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 uh, I have known nothing about the Exodus. Um, to me, I was a New Testament kind of Christian. I uh, didn't really care about the Old Testament. But uh, Doctor Josh, I know it's his um, jam. And on Deep Drinks podcast, we call him Daddy Josh because he's been on twice, and he is the <laughs> with you and those boys and daddies. Like, hey man, this is what the heathens do. This is what the atheists do, man. We, you come over here, you call people good boys and daddies. Like this is, this is what we do, right? Yeah, motherfuckers need Jesus. <laughs> and I love to end on that. Your motherfuckers need Jesus. Thank you so much for showing up, and this has been an amazing podcast. See you all later, and uh, make sure you check out next week. We'll be having uh, Tate on, and then the following week we'll be talking about Essie with uh, Reed. Nice wonder. I'm drunk. See you later. <laughs>